Steve, and welcome back to another episode of Restless the Podcast. It's been a few weeks since we were last on, and I think, if I recall correctly, you heard from Newt, who was talking about restless relationships, which we've really gotten some good feedback on. So tonight, today, wherever you might be, we have another grand opportunity with Diane, who shares her wonderful story, a challenging story about her life and her involvement in ministry. If you're interested in telling your story and being part of the show, you can do that in a couple of ways. One is to go to our website, go to the little tab that says, tell your story, leave us some information, and we would love to hear from you. Your story's unique. Only you have your story. And by the way, one of the things that we're doing in Restless the Podcast at March 28th is Reflections on Marriage, which will be kind of like a live podcast where a special couple, Newt and Claire Hetrick, will share their nearly 50 years of marriage. And perhaps from their story, you can take a few nuggets of truth that might work on your own story in marriage. But Luke, tonight, today, wherever you might be, tell us about our special guest, Diane, and her wonderful life. All right. So as Steve said, today we sit down with Diane. And to give you a little background on Diane, she grew up very close with her mom and dad in Baltimore, went to UMBC, majored in psychology and education. She has worked with Young Life for over 40 years between New Jersey, South Carolina, Ohio, and Maryland. And she's been back living in Baltimore for 18 years and still serves with Young Life as the director of their Capernaum ministry in Maryland and Delaware. But over the course of her life, Diane has faced the hardship of death and particularly particularly cancer within her family. And she joins us today to speak on what she has overcome through those hardships. Diane, welcome. Thanks. Glad to be here. Well, I want to go back to middle school. I don't know if you had the same feelings I had about middle school, but there was a lot of terror in my heart when I got off the bus and walked into the school. I always wanted to fit in. That was my goal in life. I didn't want to stand out. I wanted to fit in. I wanted everyone to like me. I wanted to be invited to the parties. I wanted to have the right people sitting by me in class. And so in middle school, I did a lot of things. They weren't really that horrible, but in my heart, I felt like they were really bad. Choosing to go to parties where I shouldn't have gone or choosing friends over family. And so that was all I thought about. I came from a family of four siblings. I had 18 nieces and cousins. And so our family was very big and very important, and we spent a lot of time together. But when I got to high school, my sister, who was a year older than me in school, became more of a friend than I ever thought she could have been. And so November of my sophomore year in high school, we went on a Young Life weekend to Northbridge. We went on a Young Life weekend to Virginia. And while we were there, I heard the gospel in a way I had never heard it before. I went to church. Our family went to church. I had perfect attendance pins. Everything about church was important in our family. And I knew my parents felt strongly about the Christian values. But it had never been personal for me. And that weekend, the speaker said, Christ died for you. If you were the only person here, Christ would still die for you. I was overwhelmed by the love of Christ, overwhelmed by the fact that God would do that for me. So that weekend, I prayed and gave my life to Christ. At the end of the weekend on Sunday, they had an opportunity 
for those of us who had said yes to Christ to meet together in a room. And so I went, walked into this room with a couple of my sophomore friends, and across the room, I saw my sister. And at first, I was like, why is she here? Why can't this just be mine? Why do I have to share this with her? But that was the beginning of a difference in our relationship. And it was the beginning of a really hard time in our family. When we arrived home from the weekend, we found out our dad was in the hospital, and they weren't sure why. He had become paralyzed on part of his right side of his body and was really suffering, and they had put him in the hospital on Sunday. So Monday, Janice and I, after school, went to the hospital with our, with our mom to visit Dad. And while they were waiting for us to go see him, my aunt and uncle were there, and I was doing my honors geometry homework, and Janice went upstairs to see Dad, and then I was going to go up later. But while she was up there, Dad went into convulsions and went into a coma, which we ended up finding out was because of brain cancer. And about three weeks later, my dad died. Mm -hmm. I never got to see him. I think there was a part of me that didn't want to see him. My dad was a carpenter and a strong man, and I had such a vision of his strength and his mm, love for life. And to see him sitting, lying in a bed with bandages on his head, a tracheotomy in his throat, I just didn't want to have that picture. At that point, mom was pretty sure dad was not going to make it. A lot of people prayed. Lots of people prayed. And nothing changed. And so on December 16th, middle of the night, dad slipped away. My younger sister was nine at the time. She was turning 10 the next day and had a brother who was 11. So suddenly my mom, who had only been working part-time, had four children that she had to raise by herself. But I remember when mom came in that night to tell, she woke up Janice and I to tell us, all of us girls shared a room, which was very, very fun. Janice and I, after mom left, were kind of crying and consoling each other. And then Janice, because, you know, she had probably been a Christian like 10 minutes longer than me, mm. she said, let's pray. And I was thinking to myself, the last thing I want to do is pray, God, what are you doing? You've changed my whole life. But we sat up by the window and looked out and we prayed. And I remember her praying, God, we don't know what's going on here, but we thank you. And we thank you most of all that you're our father. And those words just made such a deep impact on my life that God was going to be my father in a world where I didn't have a father. That fact changed how I thought about life, changed what I wanted to do with my life. I ended up staying at home and going to the University of Maryland at Baltimore County, some because my sister Janice had gotten in there also. We got to go to college together for three of my four years. I majored in education and psychology. My mom, had been a director of a daycare center, and I had worked part-time for her in the summers and after school and just loved the whole education thing. So that's what I did. I got out of college, and I started working in a daycare center, and eventually my second year became the director of a daycare center and thought, wow, this is a great future for me. But in the back of my mind, there was one thing I had added to my schedule that was going to be the thing that would change my life. And that is I became a volunteer leader with Young Life. 
What an incredible experience to give back to an organization that had given so much to me that had helped me understand the gospel and put it in terms that were easy for a teenager to understand and offer me an opportunity for fellowship and fun with people that was great fun. So I went to summer camp, I went on other weekend camps. And so in college, when someone said, hey, you wanna be a Young Life leader? I was like, yes, I've been waiting for someone to ask me to do it. So I became a volunteer leader with Young Life. And the only problem in my life at that point was I didn't have enough time to do Young Life. I kept thinking, how can I change this schedule here? So I would take my lunch break at two o'clock so that I could go to the high school, which got out at 2.15, and hang out with high school kids for 30 minutes and then drive back to work for the rest of my day. Those are the kind of things I was doing. And I remember at the time my area director said, you know, what do you want to do with the rest of your life? And I said, I wish I just had more time to do Young Life. And then he said, have you ever thought about going on Young Life staff? And I'll out myself here was 1978 when he said that. And I only knew of one female who was on Young Life staff. So I was not so sure that was something Mm. that I really wanted to do. But just the wanting to change people's lives, I don't know. I kept saying, okay, I'll check it out. I kept saying yes to opportunities to go look. And I went up to New Jersey and I met with some people up there and interviewed there. Thought that was the place. And then they said, no, we don't have enough money. So I waited, and the next year, the same area called back again and said, hey, we want to come back up and check out Young Life with us. So I went back up, and this time it worked. I got paid very little money, but I had been a director of a daycare center and didn't make much money anyway. So money was never the reason why I chose to do ministry. It was always about the relationships. Someone once said to me, that when you meet someone, a high school student, you should meet them as if they're going to be a friend for the rest of your life. That really shook me because I think I had been meeting with some high school students, oh, get them to come to club or help them hear the gospel or help them grow in Christ. But was I really going to be a friend for them for the rest of their life? After five years in New Jersey, I was looking for a little more. I wanted a bigger more responsibility. I was looking for more of a college town, although I lived in Princeton. Princeton wasn't exactly the college town I was looking for because they were really smart and had to do a lot of studying. So the students didn't really have a lot of time to be Young Life leaders with us. So I took a chance and I moved to Columbia, South Carolina, and I became eventually the area director down there. And again, at that point, I knew maybe two women who were area directors But I just knew God was calling me to it. So I wasn't so worried about what people were saying. And I'm moving to the Deep South, where most women, this is a total stereotype of the Southern women, is that they stayed at home and wore dresses all the time. So when I moved down there and I was like, I'm working, I'm doing a ministry is this going to be okay? I found some great women who loved the Lord so much and wanted teenagers to meet Christ, and they just swallowed me up in friendship. And it became a wonderful time down there. I ended up staying there for 16 years as the area director, and it rocked my world in relationships. Here's a good example. 
My friend Ann Margaret, when she was in ninth grade, got braces. That same year, as a 30-year-old, I got braces. Now, I didn't really do it because I wanted to be like a high school person. I really wanted to do it because I needed to have my teeth straightened. But how fun was it to go through that with her, to really identify with her world and to walk through those things with her? And Margaret turned 50 this week, and I wish I could read you what she wrote on my Facebook post about her birthday because it changed her life Mm. for us to be so close and to still be friends today. That's ministry for the rest of your life. And that really made me feel like I was where God wanted me to be. At the end of the time in South Carolina, I moved to Ohio and took a regional director position, and not because I really wanted to have more power or authority, but it just seemed like God was opening up doors in that direction. I really loved Ohio, but I didn't really feel like it was the best place for me. And at that point in my life, I really began to miss my family. My brother had had two kids and had done a great job of letting me be a part of their life and love on them. And then he adopted a son, and that became really important in my life. My sister got married. She had a son. And suddenly I'm like, I'm missing out on these moments. I'm not there for birthdays and baseball games and soccer games and all those things that I really wanted to have a part of my life. And the older I got, the more I missed my family and being a part of that. When I was in South Carolina, maybe my third year there, Janice decided to take a job in South Carolina. So she moved down to be with me, which, again, increased our awareness of family. But we had each other to be with. And then she became more than just my sister, became my best friend. So when I moved to Ohio, my I guess the middle of my first year there, we found out that Janice had breast cancer and I was not in South Carolina, and that was really, really hard for me. So I ended up taking off, coming down to South Carolina and being with her for her first cancer treatment, for her surgery, and just trying to be as the best sister I could be. And our family really rallied around her. I think the thought of her getting cancer after my dad dying of cancer was really hard for all of us. And she had stage three cancer, which doesn't have as good a prognosis as other cancers do. But she did really great. And my niece actually went to the University of South Carolina and moved in with her. And so again, the family kind of surrounded Janice during this hard time in her life. But um, 18 years ago, I was like, "Mm, if I could just be at home and be a little more a part of things. And so a job opening came up in the same area where I had served as a volunteer leader, which is God working in mysterious ways, and I chose to come back home here and become the area director in town here, and that allowed me to be a part of my family again, and that um, increased my love for ministry because I got to start over again. I actually went back to the same high school where I had been a volunteer leader in college so this girl comes up to me one night at club, and she goes, you know, my mom went to Mount Hebron, and uh, I think she went to Young Life when you were there. And sure enough, this girl's mom had been in my Young Life club when I was in college, so that was a weird moment. But again, that full circle and being a part of family allowed me to stay involved in her children's lives long after she was out of um, the ministry. It was sometime in my 
first or second year being back here that we began to notice some issues with my mom's memory. A few things just would slip up or she would be a little nervous or anxious, sometimes depressed. And I think we were all like, oh, it's old age, you know, she'll get over it. She was still driving. She was, you know, still living this great life. But that was not what, it was not nothing. And that really helped our family bond together. And it also drove us in trying to figure out a good solution. At some point in the middle of this diagnosis of trying to figure it out, Janice said, who, mind you, is still living in South Carolina, has a great job job teaching and has tons of friends and a great life down there. She says, over, I think it was like we're at the beach or something. And she said to me, hey, I really feel like I need to come home. And I'm like, wow, you need to come home. Now, of course, I wanted her to be home because she was my best friend. But she said, no, I really need to come home and move in with mom. And I was like, oh, my gosh, you have a house in South Carolina. You got a job. And so but she was a little leery of what we all would think of her, like giving up everything in her life to do this. Would we like be with her or not? And I'm like, go for it. And jealous that she had been away for so long and really hoping she would be back home, but knowing the burden she was going to carry as she took care of mom. So she did that. She quit her job. She moved up here with no job in mind. I went down there. We packed up all her belongings, put them in a U-Haul truck. She rented out her house for a while, and then we drove her up here, and she moved in with mom. And she was a great caretaker. Mom was still at the point then that Janice could work, and eventually she found a part-time job teaching here in the area, which gave her the life that she needed and something to be able to do and to keep her still involved and gave her a whole new set of friends up here, which was wonderful for her. But mom began to get worse and worse. And there were moments when we were like, hmm. I don't know what mom's going to do and how this is going to work out, but we were faithful in being with mom. And actually, her diagnosis was never confirmed as Alzheimer's, but she definitely had a lot of um, memory issues and anxiousness. And eventually, you know, she fell, she broke her hip. Things just compound when you get older, but our family chose to stay involved in that. And so Janice was like the huge part of holding all that together. As the oldest in the family, she felt like it was her job to be the person that was responsible. But also, she was still dealing with the fact that um, her life had changed so drastically. She switched doctors. She, at this point, had been cancer-free for about eight years. But when she moved up here, she didn't follow up with an oncologist. Her cancer was hormonal, and she had taken the proper medicine for eight years. And then after that, there really was not a second option for her. But at some point in Janice's journey, we began to see a lot of pain, a lot of bone pain, which she went to therapy and they were like, oh, maybe it's a sciatic nerve. Oh, maybe it's this. Do more exercise. And she was doing all these kind of things. But then at some point, she started having double vision. And we took her to a doctor and he couldn't figure out why. I took her to the hospital when she woke up in such pain. They did a bone scan, a brain scan, and noticed some lesions in her brain. 
And that's all I, my family needed was to hear lesions and brain and immediately our thoughts of our dad and the fact that Janice was a cancer survivor had her cancer come back. And indeed, it had come back. And eventually, six or so months later, she was diagnosed with stage four breast cancer that had metastasized into her bones, which is one of the worst diagnoses you can have. I always felt like when you get cancer, like you can do stuff to beat it. You know, you can figure out how to attack it or, you know, take the right pills or get the right chemo and everything would be fine. When cancer gets into something like your liver or your stomach, there's such little places for it to go that it fills up so quickly. Bone cancer, there's a lot of bones in your body. And so in my world, it was like, wow, it'll take a long time for this to take over all the bones in her body. And it did indeed take a long time to take over all the bones in her body. So now we have a second cancer scare in Janice's life. And then shortly thereafter, I'm about to go on a sabbatical, take three months off, and I found a lump in my breast and went to have it checked out and told no one in my family because I knew what that might do for them as they thought back to Janice's breast cancer. So I went to the doctor and had it checked out, and I had a tumor, and then they did some tests, and then my doctor said, I don't think it's breast cancer. And so then I told my two sisters, because then, I was like, I don't have breast cancer. I've been going through this for like a week and a half by myself, but I'm okay now. Then they went in to remove the tumor, and when they removed the tumor, they found a second tumor underneath of the first tumor, and that tumor was cancerous. And then, which, sitting in my doctor's office with Janice and Karen, as the doctor looks at us, and she and we've been in the room many times, but this time she goes, let's go over to the conference room. So right away, all kinds of like antenna are going up, like something is up. We get into the other room, and she gets really serious. And I'm like, this is not going to be good. And she said, hey, you know, you have breast cancer. It's only stage 1B, so, it's, <clears throat> so that's great. We caught it soon enough. But we have to go back in and do another surgery because we got to make sure we have clear margins around that tumor. And then when they back, went back in to do that um, surgery, they had found a tumor on the other side. They took that tumor out, which is not cancerous. But then on the other side, they found a second tumor that was cancerous. So now I'm looking at uh, cancer. I'm, I have triple negative cancer, which is different than what Janice had and has a higher um, immediate bad prognosis. Um, not a lot of drugs you can take when your treatment is over, when your chemo is over. There's nothing that you take after that. And if you can survive five years, you're doing really well, and you have a 93 or 4% chance of survival. So last month, I went to see my oncologist for my four-and-a-half-year mm. checkup, and so I'm getting really, really close to, close the, to the magic number. But in the midst of it, um, my sister has stage 4 bone breast cancer in her bones, and it's not good. So Janice began a treatment, an experimental treatment, and then she began a... Uh, chemo treatment. I mean, I can't 
I can't even remember how many treatments she had during the time, but um, we kind of clung to this verse. Janice was really, really good at making sure we looked at the right verses in the Bible to get us through whatever was going on. There's no sense in fighting a battle like this alone. There's no sense in depending on people around you. Like you have to just depend on the Lord. And so Hebrews six nineteen says, we have this hope as an anchor for our soul. So for me, the first day I went into my chemo, that was the verse I had on my phone and I kept looking at it. I eventually drew a picture of it of an anchor and put the verse around it because I was like, this is what I've got to be doing. This, I've got to have my anchor be in the Lord and not in the situation around me and not thinking that I can somehow muster up and make it through this without him. And in the back of my mind, I'm remembering it's stage 1B and it's probably not going to be that bad, but I just think in my family, we hear the word cancer and we never are like, oh, well, that's not that bad. We're like, it's cancer. There's got to be, there's got to be something, something. And, and Diane, Janice came up with that verse. Is that right? Yes. Yes. And she was further along in her cancer, obviously. Yes. She, um, she, I think her favorite verse probably was in Psalms and it says, my times are in your hand. It's um, Psalm 31, in Psalm 31. And so for her, the symbolism of a watch was mm-hmm. kind of how she looked at this second round mm-hmm. with cancer. Like, I'm not in control of my life. And if God's going to take me, my time is in his hands. Mm-hmm. It's not in my hands anymore. Mm-hmm. And um, I think when I was going through cancer, I never was worried as much about me as I was about her and what her cancer was eventually going to do. And during my cancer, she was like by my side all the time, coming to chemo, you know, doing whatever she could to be a part of what was going on. And so when hers got to that point, then you better believe every Wednesday, that's where I was. I was with Janice at one of her appointments with a doctor or a chemo treatment or numerous things. Um, And with hers, I think she kept having more issues, more little things would go wrong, like her fingernails started falling off. Mm -hmm. Because it was bone cancer and they were trying to increase her calcium in her body, they were giving her shots that would draw calcium from parts of your body and put it into her bones. And that drug attacked her teeth. And so, you know, she had teeth problems and it was just kind of an endless thing, but you never thought it was endless for Janice. And have I told you that during all of her about with chemo and stuff, she was caring for mom. Mm. She and mom were living together and they lived next door to Karen and Joe, my sister. And so that allowed her to have some relief and help. And eventually we had to get a, a helper coming in for mom because mom was not able to move as much um anymore. And so Janice was able to kind of be there. And I think at the end when life was really, really hard for my mom is when I was going through the hardest part of my chemo. And so mom died um, on February 20th, which was her 88th birthday. Mm -hmm. I was in the hospital with an infection because my body from having chemo was so messed up. And I got the call from Janice saying, hey, mom, just stop breathing. And immediately I said, 
don't let mom leave. Not that mom was actually mm-hmm. going to get up and leave, mm-hmm. but I didn't want them to take mom until I got home. And I was going down to have some procedure, some test done or whatever. And the nurse came in to take me and I said, hey, I'm checking out. You need to get a hold of the doctor. I'm not staying. We have to do this test. And I'm like, okay, we can do this test, but I'm not leaving. And so an attendant comes to take me in my wheelchair down to get this test done. And she says, poor girl, she goes, and so how has your day been? And at this point, I have no emotional strength left in me. And I go, well, my mom just died. And so afterwards, I was like, I want to go back and find that little girl and say, I'm so sorry, but my mom just died and I really want to get out of here. Mm-hmm. And so um, so we had the scope done and then they let me go home. And luckily, I had driven to the hospital because it was one of those. I went to see my doctor and he's like, oh, no, we got to get you to the hospital. So I driven myself to the hospital. So I had a car because everyone else was with Janice. And so I was able to go home. See mom, say goodbye to her, and then plan mom's funeral. And so at that point, it was, um, I think, really hard for Janice because she had been with mom 24-7, and suddenly now that piece of her life is gone. So Janice and I spent a ton more time together. We did more traveling. Suddenly we had all these options, this life in front of us. So a lot was happening in in that course of time, Diane, and you guys, between you and Janice, you had come up with some key verses, and you said something about that Janice would say, we want the right scripture here, and what do you mean by that? I think you can become selfish Mm -hmm. in the midst of hard times in your life. Um, Charles Spurgeon has this great quote that Janice gave me that says, Trials teach us what we are. They dig up the soil and let us see what we are made of. Mm. And Janice's was, that was kind of her thought about life. She loved a garden, and so it was a great analogy for her. So she sent it to me with this cool picture of a person holding a plant in their hand with all the dirt falling out. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we have to go through those hard times to see what we're really made of. And Honestly, I think even though I've had a lot of hard times and our families had a lot of struggles, I don't think we've ever thought, wow, our life sucks. We've had such hard times because we've always seen God there in the midst of it. And so would we have wanted more time with mom? Absolutely. Would we have wanted her brain not to be so destroyed by memory issues? Absolutely. But mom could still sing happy birthday with the best of them. You know, and so, or jingle bells. So it didn't matter whether it was a birthday or Christmas. We would say, Mom, want to sing jingle bells? Trying to not look at just the bad times in the midst of that. And so Janice really was the one that would kind of, I don't know how she did it. Because when I got cancer, there was a lot of self-doubt inside of me. Like a lot of like, whoa, like at home alone in the bed feeling like sorry for myself and saying, why me? You know? And I'd be like, I wonder if Janice felt like that. Mm -hmm. And it never seemed like she did. Like I, I couldn't find it. I couldn't find those kind of like, Oh yeah. Look how selfish she was today. I would say like, do you want to have pizza for dinner? And she goes, well, do you want to have pizza? 
I'd be like, no, Janice, you decide what we're having for dinner. She's no, I'll have whatever you want to have for dinner. I don't want to. I don't want to be a bother. I'd be like, oh my gosh, I I want someone. <laughs> I want to bother someone. Mm-hmm. I can't even bother you. You know. You you were in the midst of her illness. You were finding out what she was made of, weren't you? Mm-hmm. And what was that? I think the rock of her life was in Christ. And I will say this. She was a truth sayer. She did not like people. Oh, she loved people. But like if a person was like twisting scripture or was just a little far, a little off, track she would be like no wait no that's not true or like what does it say in the bible janice is a well-read person you know thousands and thousands of books still in her house and those books kind of gave her a avenue for this love for learning that's why she loved to teach and it gave her um a heart that was restless to find the truth of the lord in the situations that she was in so Anyway, we survived mom's death. We had some great adventures, the two of us together. And in my brain, that was kind of like the future. Like, my, you know, my new job is a little less hours than my old job. I have a little more flexibility. Janice worked two days a week. And I'm like, this could really work out really well, you know? So November of last year, we the fa- um, Karen and her family invited Janice and I to go to New York City for a few days, and we got to see the city at Christmas time, and it was so fun. But there were just a few little things, you know. She lost her pur- Janice lost her purse. Mm. She was like a little more scattered. She was a little more tired. There was a few things that I was like, hmm. And we had her in a wheelchair almost the whole time because she was having so many aches in her bones and drugs just didn't help at that point. But nothing to make you be like, oh. And only in hindsight did I kind of go, hmm, I wonder. So Christmas came and Janice was still um, suffering a little more. And we were going to see the oncologist on the 27th of December. And so when we went to see him and Janice, I had noticed at some point in helping her get into bed one night that her stomach was a little distended. And I was like, Janice, what is that? She's like, I don't know. It just, it, I don't know what happened. Maybe I'm eating too much. And I was like, it just looked weird. So when the doctor examined her and felt her liver he said, oh, my. And that oh, my was just not a good oh, my. And at that point, then he scheduled Janice for a scan, and it was found out that Janice's cancer had gone to her liver. She had had two lesions in her liver that had all along for the last five years been really great. No changes, nothing wrong with them. But once it gets in the liver... The liver is such a small organ, and it does such an important job. And so the liver was not removing toxins from her body, and it was holding on to fluid. And that was a sure sign for the doctor. So then he changed Janice's protocol and tried a couple other things, and nothing really seemed to work. She was having a 
more aches. She was having a little more trouble getting around. And eventually, um, we I moved into, we brought her down to Karen and Joe's house. I moved into Karen and Joe's house from Christmas on, and we just took care of Janice. And it's, I don't, like, I thought about this. When did Janice know this is it? Hmm. She had a birthday on January 22nd and probably got 80 or more cards from people. And so she's reading all these cards and she would talk about people and reminisce about them and be like, oh, that person or whatever. But um, so at some point, the conversation turned to not getting well, but finishing well. And so when you would ask her questions, she would say, like, this is it, isn't it? And I'd be like, oh, no, this is not it. You know, she's, no, no. I mean, like, it's okay if it's it. And I'd be like, no, it's not okay if it's it. Mm. You got you to gotta keep fighting. Yeah. But Janice was the one who always was the truth sayer, too, right? Right. So she was not going to, she was not going to, hide behind mm-hmm. anything. She gathered all her people. You know, she'd be like, call the school. Mm-hmm. You know, the students came out. She had told the students at some point, because she's always known she was going to die of cancer. At some point in this class, she had said to them, hey, now I'm going to die of cancer. And this is what I want to say to you. Don't cry too much. I mean, you can cry, but just don't cry too much. Like, you got to go on living, and you got to be happy that I'm going to be with Jesus. And so three of these girls came up to the house, and they were crying the entire time, sitting around Janice, and finally one of them said, "I'm sorry, Miss Heidi, I'm 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 crying too much." Mm. And Janice laughed with them, and they had a great time reminiscing. So, so people gathered around her to kind of have their last time with her. The whole group of teachers came up with the hymn book because they knew Janice loved hymns, and they're like, "Let's sing some of your favorite hymns," and then. Um, our pastor was there, and he was like, at some point he said, I'm going to pray, or he mentioned prayer, and then we sang a couple more hymns. And Janice, before he can pray, says, can I pray for y'all? And then Janice prays this long, beautiful prayer for all these people, teachers and the family that's there thanking people. And so the pastor is practically in tears and is trying to figure out how he's going to close in prayer <laughs> after Janice has prayed. You don't need to pray yeah, anymore no. after that. So um, anyway, Janice and I had some really, really great conversations um, late night because she had trouble sleeping. And she would say, you're my best friend. Mm. I was like, yeah, you're my best friend too. And then she'd say, you know, you're going to need to find a new best friend. And I'd be like, I'm never, I'm never taking another friend, Janice. Mm. You're the, my only best friend. She'd be like, no, you know, you need to, and you need to take care of people, you know? And then she would pull other people in the family aside and she'd say, now, Joe, you got to look out for Diane because mm. I'm not going to be there. So she had this kind of the same, I want to have that feeling when I am ready to die. If the Lord allows me to have an extended death time Mm -hmm. as opposed to a car accident, I want to say that to people. I mean, I should probably say that to people now, you know, because even though my heart has struggled, my heart has never left the anchor. Mm-hmm. 
and I've always been able to cling to the anchor that will hold. And so why not share that with people now? Absolutely. I think it's, you know, it has, it has affected me. Janice died on February the 11th. She woke up in the morning and just could not breathe anymore. And we were all gathered around her and we sang hymns and it was beautiful. We had an incredible memorial service and I felt like Christ was really honored by her life. Diane, you had also said that there were these moments, and other family members had said this too, but there were these moments that it appeared that Janice had one foot in the kingdom and one foot out. Would you, would you share some of those moments? I think there were times she would look up and she would say, where am I? And I would say, oh, we're Karen and Joe's, you know, because and she was sleeping in the kitchen, which is about to confuse anyone when they wake up and wonder where they are. And it looks like you're in a kitchen and you are. Um, and she would just ask those kind of questions like, you know, well, what's going on or what's next? And it's some I recorded a lot of little videos of her. And at one point she said, um, what's going to happen now? I said, well, now you're going to get to go be with Jesus. And then from then on, I would say to her, can you see him yet? And she'd say, who? I go, can you see Jesus yet? She'd say, no, I can't see him yet. I go, you will soon. You know, and even as she was dying, we were all saying, Jazz, let go, because she was struggling so hard to breathe, and we just wanted her to stop and let go and let God and um, to watch her pass from death to life. Mm-hmm. I've watched many high school people cross from, from death to life as they give their life to Christ. Mm-hmm. But to see Janice pass from life to death to real life was just an incredible thing. She was able to give us the encouragement that we were thinking we were giving to her, you know, and she would turn around and she would quote verses and she would have these cute little sayings and she would remind us this is not all life is. There's way more to living and her encouragement for us to keep living. She would say things like, um, well, I'm sorry I'm not going to get to see, you know, her nephew's child because they don't have a child. You know, she says, I'm sorry I'm not going to get to see whatever. I go, Janice, but you've seen so much. She goes, oh, I've seen enough for a lifetime, you know, and she was going to get to see so much more when she got to be in heaven with Christ. So, um, so I have this new job. I have new opportunities to be distracted by the world that I'm in. I'm working with students with disabilities with Young Life and helping to grow more of those ministries in our region here. And it's given me real hope for the future of what this world does and how we care for people that aren't like us. And, um, and I, and Janice was thrilled that this was a job I was going to get to do because she was excited. I wasn't going to have to work so much. (laughs) And she was thrilled that I was going to get to do something that was always been deep in our heart. My nephew, my oldest nephew is autistic and having watched him, he's 32 now and having watched him go through life and be loved by other people. It's just such a thrill. He was involved in Young Life when he was in in high school, and I know the joy that he had in doing that. I watched him 
participate in things that he never would have done. Young Life gives students like that an opportunity to do things that the world says that they can't do. And so he's part of the motivation of me now wanting more opportunities. And I think particularly in this world today, there are enough people that are different than we are. And sometimes we don't love them the same way, or we don't notice them, or we walk by them. You probably have seen a a Downs person or an autistic person bagging groceries at your store, but have you seen their heart? Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things I love about this ministry is that we're trying to look at the heart of people. And so for me in life, what do I want? I want to be a friend to people forever. I want to point them to Christ. I want to make a difference in their life that lasts forever. And the things that God has taken me through um, or been with me while I've gone through them have allowed me to think differently about ministry. So I'm in a boat that's rocking sometimes, but I'm holding on to the hand of the person who can calm the storm anytime he wants. There's an, an old song that says, you know, Sometimes in the storm, God calms the storm, and sometimes he calms our heart. And so for me, the last five years, God has spent a lot of time calming my heart in the midst of storms that he's made me walk through, even though I didn't want to walk through them. He's allowed me to walk through them so that I can be more like him and more in love with him when I come out on the other side. Diane, if I could ask it. In the ministry of Young Life, you in many respects broke ground as being a woman who became an area director and moved up in the ranks of Young Life, and you were faithful. You did all the things, and and you you did what you needed to do, yet you encountered hardships, you know, first with your dad, then your sister, and, and yes, yourself, and your mom as well. And is this how God repays you for that, really? And so what do you say? to women who are listening to this who, while not the whole story, but they're picking up little pieces of your story and say, that's me. What do you say to them about faith? Well, first, I think for me, sometimes I never noticed it. Like suddenly I become a female area director in the South. I was just doing what I thought God called me to do. So I wasn't thinking I was like starting any movement, you know? When they asked me to speak at summer camp a few years later, I was like, oh, my gosh, I love to speak. I would love to share the gospel with high school kids, not realizing it was the first woman that was going to speak at mm-hmm. summer camp. And I'm like, then, I'm, then I worry about it afterwards, you know. And I think I've had these opportunities. I've never run after them. And there are a lot of women who run after opportunities and more power to them. And please keep running. Because I think, particularly in the Christian world, we want to think that um, we are only male-run. But I think if we lose out on what females have to bring, then we miss part of the gospel. I always say to people, the gospel is male and female. On a Young Life team, we have to have a male and a female presenting the gospel. Each relates to a different person. We have to flesh out what it looks like to be a person who follows Christ in front of our peers and in front of our students and in front of our coworkers. I do think, though, I've never thought so much about, like, oh, look at all the things you've done. 
I've just thought about all the blessings I've had along the way. So when I when you sit here and you list all these hard things, I'm like, mm, oh gosh, yeah, hmm, oh yeah. But each one in my world has been a separate encapsulated incident and it's not God piling on, you know? Um, there's, there's, a, there's a verse in Psalm 94 that's verse 18 that says this, when I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. Sometimes I think I've thought my foot has slipped and then I'm like, oh no, I didn't slip, God had me. You know, when I went to camp with kids after I had finished my chemo, I was about a month out of, maybe two months out of chemo, and chemo affected my extremities, so I had neuropathy in my fingers and toes where I would lose sensation. But I was going to climb the mountain at Sharp Top, and it's, I've done it several times, and it is, it is exercise, and it could be kind of hard, but I made up the top of the mountain. My problem was coming down the mountain because suddenly, about a quarter of the way down, I had no feeling in my feet whatsoever. And I was so reminded of this verse, when my foot slips. I had two little high school girls. I'm talking little high school girls that were ninth graders who came up and said, lean on us. And I wrapped my arms around them and walked for like 45 minutes down a mountain holding on to them because I really believe that God puts people in our life that keeps our foot from slipping. Mm -hmm. The Lord is there. So whether you're, you know, wanting an opportunity and you can't get it because you're a non-dominant person in that world, God's not going to let you fall. He might let you slip a little, but the slips are okay. We survive. Every little, every little, listen to me, every little tragedy in my life is in the moment a tragedy in my life. And if I spend all my time in the moment of the tragedy, I miss the world God has outside around it. I don't like roller coaster rides, but sometimes I've been on one and I've had to cling to things and the person next to me or the bar in front of me, but I've made it. So yeah, maybe if we pile them all together, it looks like a lot but I've never felt like God's piled them on. I've always felt like God said, hey, let's try this. And he's held my hand and got me through it. Do I miss my mom and my mm -hmm. dad and my sister? Absolutely. Mm. Do I wish I'd had more opportunities to do things? Absolutely. Am I in love with where I am today? Yes. Do I still cry or am I sad about it? Yes. I'm not worried about crying about tragedies in my life because those tears are nothing compared to the tears that Christ shed for me when he died in my place on the cross. You said something that I hadn't heard before. You, you said we spend all the time in the moment of our own tragedy or hardship. We miss everything else going around us at the time. What do you mean? I think... It is easy to be so self-focused. I would, I'll say this. The first, I moved back into my house the Monday after Janice's memorial service, which was on Sunday. It was February 17th or 18th or something like that. And my Christmas tree was still up in my house because I hadn't been there. And there was a hardness, um, a hard thing to walk into that door 
when the last time I walked in that door, Janice had been in the, mm-hmm. in the other room. And so that was hard. But I walked in, and, and um, within five minutes, there was a knock at the door, and it's a high school girl. And she said, hey, would it be okay if I came over? Now, if I was living in the moment of my tragedy, I would have said, no, Rachel, I just want to sit here and cry. But I was like, sure, why not? Come on in. You can cry with me, you know? And then, I don't know, person after person came in, and there was about eight girls that night who brought dinner, who took down my Christmas tree, put everything away in the right boxes, took, I mean, it wasn't just the Christmas tree. I'm a Christmas nut. So there was Christmas <laughs> every room in the house. And they go, we didn't look in the bathroom, Diane, but we found all this Christmas stuff in the bathroom. They took it all down and they put it all away for me. And when they left that night, I didn't cry. And I had thought about that first night in the house, like would I cry the whole time? Mm-hmm. I didn't miss what God wanted to have for me because I was so dwelling on the tragedy. So that's what I mean. Thank you for, for sharing that. That's just profound in many respects. Uh, Luke, I don't know what you're thinking over there, but this has been a wonderful story. And uh, I think tonight, this afternoon, you showed us what you you were made of. And just your journey, your faith, the hardship, but also the realism of life. You know, and it's tough sometimes. Luke, you have any thoughts? Uh, Diane, what you were saying especially in your last segment there, most stood out to me as a challenge that one must choose joy. And it is worth it to do so. But it must be chosen. Totally agree. And sometimes you choose joy through tears. Yes. And sometimes those tears are of joy. Amen. Diane, we're going to give you the last word. So... How do you want to part tonight? What's your word to those folks listening out there? Well, first I would say, if Christ is not the anchor of your life, ask yourself why. Mm. Tragedies come to everybody. Everybody has hard times. And I can't imagine what my life would be like if I didn't have the anchor to hold on to. Secondly, if Christ is the anchor of your life, Embrace what God has in front of you and don't be afraid of being the only person doing it, being the first person doing it, not sure what the response will be, or I don't know, just be willing to take a risk because you're holding on to the anchor that is sure. It will not let you go. And finally, I would say there is no greater place to find peace than, than time with the Lord. And if I wasn't spending time with him every day. I don't think any of this will be possible. I want to know him more than I know him. And I've been a Christian since I was a sophomore in high school, and I still don't know enough. Diane, we want to thank you for being a part of Restless the Podcast. And for you listening out there, I, I cannot begin to imagine that somewhere in her story, there's something that you can take away as a nugget of hope and truth, because it was a wonderful story. And Diane, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it was that was really great, Diane. I, I didn't say as much with this one, but I just wanted to keep listening. So that was awesome. Exactly. Thank you. Thank you and good night. 
Thank you for listening to episode 12 of Restless the Podcast, titled Anchored in Hope, featuring Diane. For we here at Restless the Podcast have hearts restless to find the one who said, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. For whom is your heart restless? And for today, who is the anchor of your soul? Yeah.